0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to Homebase Nation. This is Ron Hershberg, your host. And if you haven't listened to us before, welcome and thank you. Before we begin, a quick note that today's conversation discusses many heavy topics, including being injured during active duty, substance use, and depression. For anyone who may struggle while listening to this conversation, please know that we support you and we are here for you. If you or a loved one is experiencing any emotional mental health struggles, you are not alone, and please contact Homebase at 617-724-5202 or visit homebase.org. This show is about service and it's about serving those who serve, especially when it comes to stomping out the stigma around mental health and seeking out care. These stories and conversations are a chance for us to reflect on the work and struggles within the veteran and military community and how this connects to the greater civilian community in this country and beyond. I'm really excited to share today's conversation with you all. Tom Tran is an incredible person. He's an army veteran. He's a first-generation Vietnamese immigrant, a Purple Heart recipient, a paratrooper, and he's the triple threat entertainer, actor, musician, and comedian. Tom and I talked a couple months ago on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day, which is a day of service, and it was very apropos. Tom has done so much in his military career for the people, for our country, Um, and at the same time when he was out, um, with some trials and tribulations that we'll talk about, he found his niche in comedy and, um, and creativity, um, and connecting with people, um, not only overseas in a USO, but locally right in LA at the Laugh Factory, um, as a professional
1: comedian. The thing about the Purple Heart is in the state of New York and in the state of California, when you have a Purple Heart, they give you a free license plate. Did you know that? That's one of the few advantages to being shot in the head in combat.
0: Just like all good comedians do, he can analyze those moments of life and about family and about just things that we can all relate on. And I think that's part of the real magic of what Tom can do is live these different experiences as an army veteran, as an immigrant, a person of color. And he does such a great job in making people feel good and laugh and uh there's nothing better than that
1: you know the moment i realized that comedy was healing my soul on this molecular level the way that war damaged it i i decided hey if this is working for me in some small part maybe it'll work for other soldiers
0: tom talks about um his dad who was a pilot in vietnam and they emigrated to buffalo new york he lived in the projects Dad and mom supported, worked very hard, had, uh, he had several siblings he'll talk about. And then Tom joined the Army when he was 18. He knew he needed to.
1: I remember it being the first adult decision I made in my life. I said, you know, a lot of people have sacrificed and, and, and died for my family to have the opportunity to be here. Like my father was a prisoner of war for three years. So I, you know, I made the decision to enlist because I felt like it was the least I could do.
0: On his first deployment, he was actually shot in the head. Needless to say, a pivotal moment and uh, time in his life. He's a master at talking about that in in an intense way, but at the same time can crack the best joke that relates to to something as traumatic as that. And that's really his his gift.
1: I'm a retired United States Army Staff Sergeant. Um, I retired because in 2003, when I deployed to Iraq, My first mission outside the wire, I was in a gunfight, and I took a 7.62 round from an AK-47 to the back of the skull. Honest to God's truth, that's why I retired. Um, It screwed up my short-term memory, and I can't remember a lot of things. And people are like, that's terrible that you don't have a good memory. And it's not, because I live uh, with a woman, and it could be the best fucking thing that's ever happened in my life. (laughs) Because I have a built-in excuse to forget everything. Just can't get mad at me, because that would be unpatriotic.
0: I'll never forget, this really was impactful, what he said to me about when he was not in a good place. And when it comes to being on stage with comedy, he said that at that time he was telling jokes, but he wasn't able to feel them. And he said that he could hear the laughter, but he couldn't feel the laughter. I felt it was such a unique and profound way to describe the difference between just surviving versus thriving. So thanks for joining me for this conversation with Army veteran Tom Tran, and thanks for your support for veterans and military families. We'll see you on the other side. So it's it's an honor to, to always uh, meet someone like you, but not only that, you wear a lot of hats. And that's, uh, that's something that I'm very curious about. But I want to start with a tweet that you sent today. It was about MLK. Okay. And about what he stood for, right? And I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that on this special day. You said I am a person of color. I was a U.S. Army soldier of color. I was a combat veteran. I am a, I am an American of color. Dr. MLK's legacy started so we could get rid of those last two words, so that we could be just be we could just be people, soldiers, Americans. Period. Thank you for that tweet because. Um, you know, it's a crazy few years and we've had, um, you know, um, we, we've had, we've had a lot going on in this country and, um, to hear, you know, to hear you say that, that no matter who you are, what gender, uh, you know, who you love, uh, what color you are, um, you know, uh, what religion you practice, you're American, you're a soldier. Mm -hmm. Um, I know, I know that, um, you have a very unique history in many ways and, uh, dates back to coming. We're going way back, way back to the eighties when you came over with, uh, I know your dad was, uh, was a soldier in South, in in South Vietnam pilot. Um, he was a pilot in South Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and so coming over was, uh, was a big change in your whole family's legacy. Really? He was starting, starting a new family um, in the U S
1: Yeah. I mean, my dad was a respected, you know, combat pilot in Vietnam, prisoner of war for like three years. Uh, And he, you know, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, watching my dad work his butt off. I mean, he was a decorated pilot and prisoner of war. And in growing up, I saw my father own a business, be a janitor, be a garbage man, make windshield wipers, uh drove a cement truck, which he does to this day. He's like 75 years old. We thought he retired three years ago. He just got bored and went back to work. <laughs> we thought he did. Yeah. Like I went home for a retirement party. I took three days off. I said no to a movie uh that I was supposed to be in, flew back to Buffalo for a retirement party. A year later he's like, I'm going to work. I'm like, dude, he's just but
0: yeah, he, so, so those hats, Tom, don't fall too far from the tree.
1: No, no, no. I mean, he the, did whatever yeah. he could to take care of his family. And, right. you know, growing up as a kid in the 80s, or even now for that matter, I, I, you don't realize how much your parents go through because you're just like, I want Transformers and girls and booze. And like, you grow up and through the stages. And then, right. you know, I turned 18. I was like, holy, you know, crap, man dad went through a lot to, to get us to where we are. You know, and I make this joke, I make this joke on stage that my parents, you know, came to the States and, uh, you know, my older brother is a, a chemical engineer. My older sister is a federal agent. My younger sister builds computers for the government. And I am, you know, I tell dick jokes for a living. Like that is my <laughs> claim to fame in my family. I'm the cool uncle. Cause I'm on TV, but man, my parents went through literal hell to get us over here so we could have the opportunity to have whatever the American dream was or is to this day and yeah man if i gotta work six or seven jobs you know to to take care of myself you know I don't have to i i'm i you know i I'm not what you would call famous i'm notable at best and i'm not rich i am financially okay but you know, like I watched my dad work his ass off to put his kids through Catholic school to go through, co- like they worked their butts off. You know, um, so that's you know I, I see that in my dad and my mom who who's passed, but they were literally, you know, literally janitors and then you know bought a business or two or three <laughs> um, and did whatever. He, they was, could. A he, was, mean, a he was a pilot. He was a pilot. Pilot. In
0: Southern Vietnam. He, yeah, and, and he trained- and revered he, in that way, I'm sure.
1: Yeah, he trained in Biloxi in 67 with the U.S. Air Force and then went back and flew with the South Vietnamese and the U.S. Air Force. And he was, you know, he was on his way up the ranks when Saigon fell, and then he got put in a prisoner of war camp. And he was, like, to this day, in the Vietnamese community in Buffalo, New York, my father is uh, held to high esteem um, because of who he was before- coming to the United States and who he is now and, and, and what he continues to do for the community. But, you know, wow. That's, wow. that's hard work, man. That's, that's the stuff that I see as an immigrant, first-generation American immigrant, that people have forgotten, man. Families who came here 100, 200 years ago, they forgot, not even that, people who came here in the, tw- the 10s and the 20s, like Irish immigrants who joined the military to get their American citizenship. Like people forget that happened. Oh, it was crazy, you know. And, and I, I had
0: this crazy opportunity to to talk with Spike Lee of all people, like a couple of years ago, and he had just filmed uh, the Five Bloods, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. the Five, you know, right, which would resonate obviously with your with your uh, um, your family and. He he you know, we would talk about how, uh, you know, blacks were beyond second second class citizens, obviously in the 50s and 60s and World War Two. And they were fighting for their own freedom. Uh, They're fighting for for the US mm-hmm. and they come back and they were treated worse than even the like the Nazi POWs. Mm-hmm. Like it, it was like and they couldn't vote. I mean, you know, you can go on and on with this stuff. but One of uh, the
1: last Tuskegee Airmen just died. Brigadier General.
0: Um, is t- that the 112? 102.
1: Uh, there was a 112-year-old World War II vet that just passed That's away right. a couple weeks ago. But there was uh, one of the last Tuskegee Airmen who was like, he was 102, just passed away the other day. And just like, yeah, that legacy that we forget, man. I I I don't forget it cuz there's pictures of me as a a baby at a refugee camp in Thailand in 1979 1980 before we got to the states. So that stuff is, you know, it's not stuff that I forget and you know, I just trying to do good. But at the same time,
0: you are you are a veteran. And so you serve with all different types. Um and it's what it's been about uh Gosh, not twenty years. What is it like? You were there in two thousand three. Yep,
1: the right? Spear, uh, OIF one.
0: So you're you're in Buffalo, New York. You said you, you know your dad's working his ass off. So is your mom. You're ra- raising the four kids plus the the fifth kid, and uh, and you and and you find your way to the army when you're eighteen.
1: Yeah, uh, ninety seven. I I enlisted, um, because I you know I. I remember it being the first adult decision I made in my life where I I said, you know, a lot of people have sacrificed and, and, and died for my family to have the opportunity to be here. Like, my father was a prisoner of war for three years. So what am I going to do? Uh, go dick around in college for four years and not know what I want to do? Uh, I wasn't going to be a rock star. I mean, I wanted to be. I just. Yeah. You were hoping to be was Eddie Van Halen, Hallen. right? But uh, yeah, Eddie Van Halen, that was my goal. Um, so I, you know, I made the decision to enlist because I felt like it was the least I could do. It was, I mean, put on a uniform for eight years. My family came from literally nothing. I grew up in the projects of Black Rock in Buffalo. You know, my parents worked their way up. We, we grew, there are pictures of me in the projects in Buffalo and then Five or six years later, my parents moved to like the east side of Buffalo where they bought like a store. And then a few years after that, they moved out to Cheektowaga, out to the suburbs, you know, and we were going to, I I went to St. Joe's until I was politely asked by the brothers to leave. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, my sisters went to Catholic school, like they worked their asses off. And I was a punk kid in the nineties playing hair metal. 10 years after hair metal had stopped <laughs> and uh you know it was all grunge and and whatever and then i i went man a lot of people went through a lot of shit for me to to be a punk rock and roll wannabe metal guitarist so and i blame robin williams for every career decision i've made since i was 18 mm. um i saw good, good morning good in vietnam blame. yeah i saw good yeah. morning in vietnam and i wanted to be I wanted to be Adrian Kronhauer. I wanted to be the Good Morning Vietnam guy. Like, I worked in radio in high school. Uh, I was a musician. I loved music. So I wanted to be the Good Morning Vietnam guy. And I went in, and uh, I I went to my recruiter. Well, funny story. So uh, right before I turned 18, February of 97, I uh, I picked up the phone. Um, I was going through the phone book. Uh, for for people in the now, phone books, big yellow book they used to send to your house with phone numbers. Uh, This is before the internet. There was uh, a yellow one and a white one. Yes. So I was going through the yellow pages and I was looking for the army recruiter number and the phone rings and uh, never forget how confused my recruiter was when I answered the phone. He goes, hey Tom, this is Staff Sergeant Sanchez from the army recruiting office and I said, Hey man, I was looking for your number. I was literally about to call you. And he just was like, What? What? I, what? Like, it was <laughs> never, he'd never had somebody so enthusiastic to talk to him. So I went in and I was like, Hey man, this is what I want to do. I want to be Robin Williams. I want to have that job. And um, he goes, Yeah, that job's not available right now. But we have a radio job and a special operations unit. And I don't know what the hell any of that means. I'm an 18 year old metal guitars so i'm like sure let's do that in my head i'm jumping right. out of planes playing acdc while the pipe hitters are like hitting the ground i'm trying to motivate them with like some back in black as they are kicking right. ass right not what i did totally not my job 100 <laughs> not my job but good morning baghdad yeah, exactly um <laughs> but yeah i joined in 97 it was you know peacetime i say that in quotes peacetime army um I think while I was at AIT, Clinton bombed Somalia. You know, I, I remember coming out of a movie and uh, the instructors were like, get back to the barracks, some shit's going down. I'm like, what? what what's happening? We were, what could possibly be going down? And like, we just like sent some Tomahawk missiles into Somalia. I'm like, oh, good, good. We just watched Starship Troopers on base. I'm like, okay, this is this this is how it starts. Like, And then the aliens come down. But I fell in love with it, man. It was, you know, I was a punk kid who played guitar. And you found
0: something in that initial, it wasn't just about that that bombing in Somalia. There was some camaraderie. I mean, it, obviously that's like the, the, the epitome of it. When you hear it and you're right. like, wow, we're That's when it got together. real. But, right. Um, but there was something that you found a sense of belonging in, I can imagine.
1: Uh, I remember getting to my first unit as a private E nothing, and um, I was a signal. I was a, a signal dog, you know, camo kid. And um, it was an E five slot, and they didn't have an E five filling it. And they're like, "Hey, private, guess what? You're in charge." I'm like, "Excuse me?" They're like, "You're in charge of all the battalion's camo stuff." I'm like, "You know, I'm I'm like 19, right?" And they're like, <laughs> "Welcome to the <laughs> army." And I was like, "Okay." <laughs> And that's, you know, I, uh, I, that's when I got my first taste of like responsibility, like real responsibility, because I was a 19 year old private E, nothing filling in a slot for an E5. And um, that was my job, make sure everybody could talk, no wire, no fire, you know, you don't talk, you don't shoot. Um, So they, that was my first taste of like being an adult, right, right out of the fire, uh, frying pan into the fire. And uh, luckily, you know, I had some good leaders in my battalion, who they it, it it was a soft unit, so you know they they knew how to mentor, they knew how to
0: right. It's a real deal.
1: Make enlisted people feel like, especially younger enlisted people, feel like leaders, and how to how to train them to be good leaders. So I was very lucky right off the bat, you know, with good battalion commanders and good company commanders and good PLS who were like, all right, private yeah, you're an E nothing, but you, you got to sit into this briefing with a one star and explain, you know, why the battalions combo stuff is all dicked up. And yeah, man, you grew up real fast. Yeah. I would imagine every day was like a week. Every week was like a month. I bet. Yeah. I mean, I, I was, I was a E three E three. Yeah. Had me E three. And, uh, I got sent to Fort Devens, Massachusetts, which is like a, you know where the Fort Devens is. It's it's up. It's to right there. around the corner yeah, for me. It's a yeah. uh, 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 it's now. A, I well, it was back in whatever ninety eight ninety nine. It was a reserve training base, so I, I get to set up there as an E nothing. And they were fielding the RT fifteen twenty three echoes, the jumpable Singars radios, the 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 little ones we were throwing in backpacks to jump out of planes because the old ones were like the size of a friggin' Panasonic Tough Book, which people don't <laughs> know what those are anymore. But what's well, whatever. So I get up there. <laughs> you look the, it up in the phone book, you phone. <laughs> yeah. Uh so I get up there as an E nothing, fielding these new radios with a bunch of like E sixes and E sevens and OGA guys and who are, you know, from all kinds of soft units. Um, and I'm the only one that could figure out the radio. Cause I'm like this radio nerd kid who I like, grew up in radio and I went, you know, I went to AIT for radio, but I, I worked in radio in the civilian world. So I'm like helping train these other ncos and like how to use the thing and then i get back to battalion Wild. they're like hey we're putting you in for an award i'm like for what they're like you did really well i was like all right cool man i guess if that's how that works <laughs> you know how to put this stuff together <laughs> yeah um you know I wow. so as a 18 19 year old 20 year old i I learned responsibility and I learned to love it. You know, I, yeah, sure. I love heavy metal and chicks and, and, you know, long hair and spandex to this day. I love them all, but, uh, they're back now. Oh, I know. I know. I just went to the store the other day. I saw some leather, leather pants and I was like, "Mm, you don't do enough cocaine to fit into those. So (laughs) don't, uh, don't even think about that. Um, I'm kidding. I don't do cocaine. That's right. (laughs) But just the spandex are real. Spandex are real, but yeah, I was this, 20 year old kid who who I fell in love with it and uh, yeah but yeah, it didn't last long I mean it did until I got shot and my roommate got killed and uh, I mean it felt every day felt like a a, a millennium you know? Yeah, know like uh, so you got shot four was it four weeks into your deployment right four days into my deployment <laughs> uh, we crossed the border well well, four days into the war. So I touched down in Kuwait, uh, January of '03. The war started in March. Uh, we crossed the border. My team crossed the border 29 March. And then I got shot on April 3. Um, so that's about the timeline. And um, yeah, man, I got shot my fourth day. My roommate got KIA two weeks before we came home, you know, about a year after we touched down. So it started like shit and it ended like shit. And uh, everything else in the middle was just (sighs) getting through the days. You know, at at the beginning, I mean, I got shot my fourth day, man. The only thing I could think was, I got this private who literally just got out of AIT a week before we got on the, the plane and left Fort Bragg. And I remember thinking, if I freak out, the first week, this kid has no fucking chance. Like, if his immediate NCO freaks out, yeah, I got shot in the head. Kind of a big deal. Kind of. But if I lose it right now, this kid has no chance. So that was my whole thing. I was this a 24-year-old E6, like, taking care of a bunch of 18 and 19-year-olds. And I'm a baby. I'm, I was a baby. And taking care of other babies.
0: And I got but shot. you had launched in at 19 from E nothing to E6 in a day. Yeah. And you became a mentor.
1: Yeah. In 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 weeks. And I had, I mean, luckily, like I said, I had good leaders who from day one were like, all right, this is how you become a leader. You know, this is you're not just a soldier. You're you're the NCOIC of this entire section of which you just got to, you know, from day one. And, I mean, I got in in 97. The war happened in 03. There was a bunch of other shit that happened in between. Bosnia, Herzegovina, all that. But, um, yeah, man, all I could think was I got these kids. Kids. Literal kids who are looking up to me to not freak out.
0: Was that going through your mind when you uh, bandaged up and got right
1: right back, or was that more adrenaline instinct? Oh, that was all adrenaline and training, man. That's, you know, it's like... It's like jump school. It's all muscle memory. Yeah. Going out on that mission, I, I had to say to myself a few times, uh, this is what you train for. This is, this is what being a soldier is. It's not, you know, just dicking around on FTX. This is, it's, this is the real life right now. Um, and then once a gunfight started, like I watched the video because there is a video of the gunfight where I got shot. Up until the moment, like they're bandaging me up at the the cache at Anasaria uh, or Tulil Airbase, I should say, mm-hmm. and um, it was all adrenaline. It was all just all right. Basic combat lifesaver training, you know, basic infantry one hundred and one, take cover. All that it was. It was just all adrenaline. From you know, there was I didn't realize I'd gotten shot until a couple hours later. I picked up my boonie cap and there's an entrance hole and an exit hole. And I'm like, Oh, that wasn't shrapnel. It wasn't a ricochet. Someone tried to kill me straight up, blow my brains out. Like it was a sniper. Yeah. Yeah. According to the paper. So in, did you get,
0: um, did you pass out at all?
1: Nope. Nope. I, I bandaged my head. Um, the major who was sitting behind me was like, Hey, I'm going to drive. I'm like, yeah, maybe you should do that. Cause I'm bleeding out of my skull, sir. Um, oh, so God. he, he takes over and, uh, we actually had to run another mission. <laughs> um, we, we, you know, we were, we were out with a team from fifth group and, um, the gunfight goes down. We sort out that situation and then, you know, we get a call over the radio. Uh, there's some shit going down at the mayor's office and we're the only assets anywhere close by to get over there. So, uh, The ODA captain looks at me and goes, Hey, you gonna be all right? I'm like, Yeah, Rich, I'm fine, other than the bleeding from my head. So he's like, we gotta do a thing. We go over to the mayor's office and he looks at me and he goes, You watch the vehicles. I'm like, that's a great idea, Rich. I'm the guy bleeding from his skull. I'm gonna, I'm gonna watch the vehicles. And uh and then they finished doing whatever they had to do. Uh, we got back in the trucks, drove back to Khalil Air Base, and I was, you know, I was on comms talking to uh, my talk and and the cash to get back, you know. I think I think my stand up comedy career started on that drive back. Hmm. Um, Why? We we radioed my talk and I said, "Hey, uh, we're coming back, <clears throat> but we have to go to the hospital because I I sort of got shot." And uh, whoever was back at the talk was like, "What do you mean you sort of got shot?" I was like, "I sort of got shot." <clears throat> and then it it breaks up because we we're kind of far out. We we're about 15 clicks out. And then the retrans from the the combat hospital calls up and he goes, hey, Sergeant, I can hear you. I can hear your bass. You tell me what's going on. I'll relay it. I'm like, yeah, man, I sort of got shot. And he goes, yeah, I heard that part. What happened? And I said, this is going to sound way worse than it is. I got shot in the head. He's like, you got what? I was like, I told you, dude, it's going to sound way worse than it is. So he goes, "Uh, how long are you going to get back here? I'm like, we're about 10, 12 mics out. And uh, our 10, 12 clicks out. And um, I said, hey, look, I heard uh, 423 brought up some donuts from Kuwait. So we're going to stop over there. We're going to get some donuts. He's like, no, g- come right here. I was like, I'm kidding. Of course, we're going to come right to the hospital. It'd be ridiculous if I didn't. So we drive back. And the only thing they hear is that the soft team went out. Sergeant shot in the head. Nobody knows anything like We pull in and my major's just standing there with his arms crossed, shaking his head like, it's your fourth day. And I just start waving. I'm like, hey, Joe. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, I'm fine. I'm good. Literally brushed with death, like a a centimeter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And, you know, that was the start of my deployment. That was four days.
0: You know, the resilience is just, is powerful. And you said it was a start of your comedy routine. So what was that? You had a long, you had a long year. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. How did you cope? My guitar. During that time? Your guitar. I had an acoustic Fender, uh, black acoustic that I brought with me, that I, hidden the Connex. And um, I remember Easter Sunday, 2003, sitting on the roof of my camo shack in, I'm oh, no, Talil Air Base. I finished writing a song that I had started writing like three years earlier. is this country song that I started writing like when I was in college and I just, I could never finish it. And I just, that's like the one weird thing I remember about that. I mean, I'll remember a lot from that damn deployment, but sitting on the roof in the Iraqi sun on Easter Sunday, 2003, finishing a country song. Like, doesn't get more army than that. Yeah. Like, in a war yeah. zone, writing a country song on Easter Sunday. It doesn't, doesn't get more American soldiers than that.
0: <laughs> so that song, did, did what came into your head when you were on that rooftop? You have your black guitar on your lap. Did you, did you think back to a time when you were writing that song or did the actual words and music come in at that time? I had, most,
1: I had most of the song written um, as, a, as a country radio DJ in my younger days and uh, I, I love country music. After, after I discovered country music once grunge became a thing, um, uh, I fell in love with it and uh, I started writing this, this country song um, and it, it's basically about what you find wherever you are in your life, in whatever or city that you're in or town or city, or what state or whatever. And I had the first two verses written in the chorus, but the, in my head there was always a bridge um, before the guitar solo. And I, I just could never find a bridge. And um, I was playing it over and over again. And then I hit this E minor chord and then just like, the lyrics popped into my head on the roof on the roof in Iraq on Easter Sunday, 2003. Of course. And I'm like, man, this is a weird damn place for me to finish this song. <laughs> um, and I, I and what I, happened with that song? I recorded it a few years later. Um, like after I came home from, from the deployment, I moved back to Buffalo uh, I was working on the radio, and uh, m- one of the most famous bands from Buffalo are the Goo Goo Dolls. Right, right. And uh, Robbie takeak from the Goos, he was a good friend of the station, um, and he was producing a record for some friends of mine, and I had, like, I I talked my, one of my buddies into producing uh, a record for me. I had some songs written, and that was one of them. We got a demo of it recorded. It's, a, it's not a good, I mean, it's just, oh, five that I did this? um so i have this demo and i had a band started and uh, it was, it was me the drummer was a guy i've known since i was six we, we went to school together forever and then bassist and the singer were twin brothers and uh i was like hey man the goo, goo dolls are gonna like freaking record an album for us like we could play the music is art festival and the, the twin brothers were like Nah, man, we're cool. Like, we're just gonna play in the basement for our wives. We're gonna keep working at, at the bank. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, we could legit be rock stars. And you're gonna work <laughs> in this bank? And they're like, yeah, we wanna have families and kids. I'm like, you guys need to do drugs or something, man. Like, just, like, <laughs> you, like we, they wouldn't get out of the basement. So I, I, that's when I left music um, because I, you know, I was post-deployment. 2005. 2005. Um, And I was like, I can't work with like, if if I'm going to put my heart and passion into something, I can't have three people who don't put that same heart and passion into the thing. And I think, and I kind of feel like that's what happened with my career in the military. Like I put my life, passion, love, blood, literally... On the line, and somewhere along the line, it didn't feel like my chain of command gave a shit. And it was, and then, you know, you come home and you're, you're, you're bearing friends and then you're drinking and your relationships don't work out. And like, I, I put eight years of my life into this thing that I loved and literally, literally nearly died for within centimeters of losing my life for. But I came home and I didn't feel like it mattered.
0: Not only that, you, you knew that you needed to get back on the mission. Yeah. After, after that. Yeah. And you needed to be there for the younger dudes. Yeah. So you felt, this is back what? 15 years, more than 15 years ago. Yeah. And, um, is that when obviously you had some tough times with, like you said, alcohol relationships, not going peachy.
1: Yeah. I was engaged. When did that you, broke down? You were engaged. Yeah. yeah. Um, that didn't work out. Uh, you know, college girlfriend. Um, you know, I, 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 told the story on, uh, this Netflix show that I did Larry Charles produced a show called the, uh. The dangerous world of comedy, and he literally flew around the world. He went to like Somalia and talked to stand-up comedians in Somalia and like South America. Like talked to dudes that were like prisoners from warlords, and uh, like I'm featured in the third episode, my my group, the GIs of Comedy, and um, you know, there's a story that I always tell that like I came home, I came home January of. Oh, 04. So, you know, 12-month boots on the ground. My roommate had just been killed 19 December in El Koot. And I went home. I got back to Fort Bragg on Thursday. On Monday, I started my senior year of college. So I'm going to say it again. I got back from a war on Thursday. Four days later, I'm starting my senior semester in college where I did I want to say 18 to 21 credit hours. And a normal semester is like, what? 12? 12. Maybe 16? yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because this was like my third senior semester because every time I tried to finish college, oh, hey, you have to go to Japan. Oh, hey, we got a mission to Bosnia. Oh, hey, needs of the army. And the needs of the army always came first and I got that as a soldier. But at this point, I almost died. My roommate had been killed. I'm drinking nonstop. So I came home on a Thursday. I started college on Monday. January went to May, five months later. I graduate, finally. Eight years it takes me to graduate from college. We, I graduate, and we, they, my family and my, my then fiance's family had this huge graduation party for me at her house. And it was the first time in... 20 plus months between the ramp up, the war and me coming home where I stopped for a moment. Everything was high op tempo for two years. And I broke down in tears in the backyard uncontrollably. Like I went out to have a cigarette and I lost it. Because where the, were you physically? Uh, this uh, backyard at my, my fiance in in Lancaster, New York. Yeah. And, uh, That was, that was it. That was the, the moment I stopped, the moment the wheels stopped gone for a, for a second, I broke down. And that was, that was the beginning of the end for me because now I'm not a soldier anymore. I'm not a student anymore. Right. My entire plan for my life, which I had mapped out pretty well, gone down. the Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't have soldiers to lead. I don't, I, I'm I'm not following anybody anymore, right? School. No one's done. following you. Yep.
0: And it's it's really, it's 2020 hindsight is pretty powerful because you see a guy that has you know you got all your guitars behind you, you got your microphone in front of you. You've been in movies. You've been um, you've been you've had your own podcast, your own series. You've done guitars for vets. You've done G I Z comedy. So when does the machine start? What happens to you and do, does it click somehow when you say, wait a second,
1: I, I can wear hats? I, I know the moment that it happened. I came home after OIF1, I was like 125 pounds, I just skin and bones. <clears throat> Within a year, I was like 200 pounds. I'm just drinking, working on the radio, DJing at nightclubs, drinking all, all the time and I I went on vacation with uh, my then-girlfriend, this is after the fiance, and we went to Mexico, and there is a photo that we took on the beach in Mexico, 06-ish, I wanna say. And I'm on the beach in Mexico with my girlfriend, and my shirt is off. And I looked at that phone and I went, that is fucking unacceptable. That is unsat right there. That person, that, that's, that's not acceptable. And uh, I was a soldier. I was this Joe paratrooper, and I looked at this photo and I'm like, no, that's, that's, that's unsat. And that was the moment that I was like, something has to happen right now. I, I, I slowed down on the drinking. I won't say I stopped. I didn't really stop drinking in, for, uh, until a few years ago. But I, 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 I put myself on a PT program and, uh, right. you know, uh, the band stopped being a thing. Um, and I found comedy again. And, you know, I took all my training as a soldier and all the mentality of being a combat soldier and going, what do I need to do to be successful in this thing that I want to do that nobody has ever taught me how to do it. There's no school for standing up comedy. Yeah. You know, you could talk to people, but there's no path. You, you ask 10 different comics, how they got to where they are. You'll get 14 different answers. So yeah.
0: Did you go and connect with other comics that were actually in the military world, or did you just go straight into no. comic world? No, no. Clubs. Yeah.
1: I didn't know there were other comedians that were veterans until I moved to Los Angeles. Like I assumed that there were, but I, you know, um the I grew up in the 80s where veteran was a dirty word. You know, that was post Vietnam. Nobody wanted to talk about being a vet. Nobody was, was proud of their service. No one certainly in the entertainment industry that I knew of. Like years later, I found out Chris Christopherson was a ranger. But I became a comic again, and this goes back to Robin Williams because of Patch Adams. Like he yeah. was healing people with comedy. Yeah. And uh, you know, the moment I realized that like comedy was healing my soul on this molecular level, the way that war damaged it, I I decided, hey, if this is working for me in some small part, maybe it'll work for other soldiers. So I, I had this goal, this mission set in my head to be what Bob Hope was in the entertainment and comedy space because there hasn't been a Bob Hope since Bob Hope. There have been people who've done it, but when you say Bob Hope, you have a very specific image in your head, him on stage in the jungle in Vietnam. You know, like that's, that's what you think. So I was like, I'm gonna do it, but I'm gonna do it as a soldier speaking to other soldiers. So I had this, this goal um, when I moved out to LA and became a professional comedian that I wanted to get back downrange to perform for, for other, you know, other troops. And I moved to LA in May of 2008. I landed a movie almost immediately. Um, I did a, a, a race to witch mountain, um, small part. I was working as a consultant, uh, for a, a military consulting firm here in LA, uh, a now defunct military consulting firm. Um, and, um, it was the first like big Hollywood project I worked on. When I moved out here in '08, I was one of the few if not the only OEF, OIF combat guy, certainly with a purple heart, who was working in Hollywood. There were dudes, of course, from Vietnam and Korea and Gulf War I who were working in Hollywood in various capacities. But So I come out here and I work on this movie and I am teaching other soldiers or other veterans, I guess, to look like a soldier on camera because it was, I just remember saying like to the director, it's cheaper for you to pay me to teach these soldiers how to be actors than it would for me to teach these actors how to be soldiers. Right. So this is my first job and I worked on it. I finished the movie, I get back to LA because we shot in Vegas for a couple of weeks. And I, I get back and immediately I get a call from my agent and she's like, you're going to Iraq to perform. Oh, wow. So- The goal is a
0: little bit uh, quicker on the horizon. It was way
1: thought. faster. Like I got to LA in May. Shot the movie until the beginning of June. I was in Iraq mid-June. One of my last shows was on the Army's birthday at a fob in the middle of nowhere in Iraq two months after I moved to LA. Less than two months. So then I did it. I was like, all right, cool. I did the thing. Now what? And I went over there with two civilian comics, um, uh, Chris Shaw and Jerry, uh, Jerry Longmire. So get right. to Iraq, I do that, and I come back and I'm like, now what? And an opportunity had come up in LA. Um, the Bob Hope USO at LAX um, is here. And I was working on the radio. And uh, one of the big stations out here, K-Earth 101, they were doing this thing with the Bob Hope USO uh, where they're raising money for them. And they were looking for like, the military's funniest service member, quote unquote. Um, so it was a competition. It was a game show. They were trying to do like a reality series. I think. Oh, was happened? So it wound up being like what they wanted was a bunch of vets who were just transitioning out who wanted to be comedians to like do this this competition. So and they got a bunch of them, right? And then they got me and like a couple other cats who are yeah we're vets but we're also professional comedians. Uh, And I wound up winning this contest three years in a row. And the third year, they just went, you can't do this anymore. Like, this isn't, this is not fair. Like, you have a bunch of newbies. It's like sending a bunch of uh, green privates uh, into, you know, Robin Sage with a bunch of guys who just finished SF qualification. They're like, all right, now you fight them.
0: Right, but it's like the basketball, uh, pro basketball teams on the uh in the Olympics when it first started.
1: Yes, yes, (laughs) that's a better analogy. Um, so in the course of doing the these fundraisers, I had met a few other comics who were veterans, you know, professional comics who were veterans, and then I put that GIs of Comedy group together. You know, that the thing that I wanted to do, I said I want to create this group of comedians who will relate better to service members than any other comedian could. Why? Because we wore the uniform. We, we literally slept in the same tents in the desert on deployment. You know, I, my, when I went back to Iraq in 08 to perform, I met, I didn't meet, I ran into an E5 who I put in the army when I was a recruiter. So one of my last duties, I was, uh, I was doing hometown recruiting, ADSW with the recruiters back in Buffalo, and I put this kid in the army. And five years later, he's an E five, and he's like, "What are you doing here?" I'm, like, I'm a, I'm a stand up comic now. He's like, "What the fuck?" Like I don't understand any of those words that just came out of your mouth. <laughs> and uh, he thought you're messing with him. Yeah, he's like, ah, he thought I was like Blackwater or something. I was like, "No, man, I'm a comic. Like I'm literally, <laughs> And. Uh, so yeah, I wanted to create this group where, where vets and service members are going to, you know, the goal of our group isn't just to like perform specifically for veterans and service members. It's like, I want to be able to make everyone laugh, but I want those Joes to laugh a little bit harder, you know? Well, the material,
0: you know, I looked at some of your stuff and, you know, the material is going to be tweaked. Yeah. Right. So you're doing acronyms, you're doing stories, you're getting laughs, and it's in a in, a, in a military crew crowd that's very different than civilian. When you're in the club in L.A. Right. Um. But you, what's the what I think is some of the beauty of it though, is how uh, and you c- you're able to do this when you can get civilians to laugh and to find that sort of safe. Um, you know, they feel good. And at the same time there you're connecting the military civilian uh, divide. Yeah. I mean, I, what, I, you know, there's so much uh, there's, there, you know, there's so much um, uh, lack of edu- There's a lack of education and a divide in our country. Yeah. But if you can get people and music does it too, right. Mm-hmm. Poetry does other things, but if you can get them to laugh in the same place, it's a win. I, I'm curious what type of, examples you've you've witnessed that
1: in i mean i show a video of me getting shot in the head on stage and i make a joke about it and regardless of what your military experience may or may not be that joke is a killer every single time and it's not just because i got shot in the head it was my father's response to me being shot in the head and that's the connecting thing. It's not just that, yeah, yeah, I was in Iraq and I got shot. It's like, I have this overbearing father who no matter what I do, it's, it's not going to be good enough. And we all have that. Like whether your dad is a lawyer or doctor and wants you to be one or, you know, he's the head of some company and wants you to do. It's the, fa- it's the thing. It's the father thing where everybody, when you, when you hear that joke, you're like, oh yeah, this dude was in the army, but he's got a dad just like mine.
0: Yeah. And it doesn't matter that's, who you are. That's the magic, man.
1: It's, you know, it's like, so part of the joke, I won't give away the whole joke, but part of the joke is, so my father was a prisoner of war in Vietnam. Nothing I ever do will compare to his experience. I got shot in the head in Iraq and my father's like, you know, as a prisoner of war, right? I was like, yeah, man, I get it. I get it. He's like, yeah, for three years. I was like, I know. Everyone yeah. knows because you fucking tell us every Christmas. <laughs> I've heard this, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And we all have that, Dad. You know, I'm, I'm in three museums. I am legitimately, I'm in the Museum of the United States Army in Washington, D.C. I'm the Museum of uh, U.S. Military Veterans and uh, the Memorial in Columbus, Ohio. And I am in the Lucille Ball Museum of Comedy in Jamestown, New York. I am a living exhibit in three museums nationally recognized museums. Yep. My not father, good enough, man. I told my father, and he goes, you know, uh, there's a guy named Johnny Kim who was a seal, a doctor, and an astronaut. I'm like, yeah, I fucking know, man. I get it, I get it. He's Asian, too. And he's Asian, right. and his hair is fantastic. <laughs> I am so, like, if I ever meet Johnny Kim, when i will punch him in his perfect hair. Well, tell, tell me about, you know,
0: what is it about laughing? what is it about the therapy right so so we know you know you and i, I, I preach in the choir i'm a musician myself and there's a therapeutic element to songwriting to playing to listening um, also uh, you know listen there, there's a lot of comfort that comes in other other things not so good things too
1: what is it about comedy it's the same thing with music man it's it's emotional you don't think when you belly laugh when i belly laugh when i hear a joke that makes me lose control of my vocal and just like you, you laugh at a good joke and it's 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 an emotion it is a deep it's not a thing that you're thinking about you're not and unless you're a shitty comic and you're like analyzing you like in the back room analyzing every joke that your friend tells uh but that's just us but even that, like I, I was sitting, I, was, did, I did a set last night at a club and I was just sitting there watching one of my buddies. Killing it, killing it. Just, and he, he was, was killing, killing it. it. You were laughing. And the yeah, whole audience is laughing and I am the loudest one. And I am not thinking about, I wasn't trying to analyze his joke. I wasn't like seeing, trying to think three steps. I'm just taking it in. And for your general audience who's sitting there watching a show, you're just taking it in. And if it makes you laugh, that is is—that is not a forced thing. Like I can tell a forced laugh. I hate forced laughs. Don't, just don't laugh. Because I want the genuine, deep down, in your gut, pull out this this gut-busting laugh. Like that's what I want.
0: Yeah. If you have a tiny crowd, you want that with gut-busters gut rather than... 500 people that are just sort of giving you- Chuckles. You know, a little-
1: I did a set at the Laugh Factory at 1 a.m. on a Friday to seven people who were hammered. And it was one of my favorite sets of my entire life. Really? It was amazing. Seven people, I am directing all of my attention to seven people in a room that holds 200. And it was one of my favorite sets because-
0: (laughs) That was the best night of one of the best nights of their
1: life, too, because they know you are on and they were just seven people. And I wasn't, you know, and I've played to hundreds and thousands, and sometimes that's fine. That's more often than not, it's fine. But man, like I have those nights where just it's hitting. Every joke is hitting and it's new and it's fun and it's making me excited and it's making me laugh. Like I got to laugh first. If the joke doesn't make me laugh, I'm not gonna tell it to a room full of strangers. I'm like, of, of, eventually my jokes stop making me laugh because I've done them so many times. But with right, comedy, right. just like music, like I can hear a song and it will put me into a different place, into a different time. There's a song by an Irish uh, pop group called The Coors. And every time I hear it, I am sitting back on a train in Japan going from Tokyo up to Nagano to see this girl that like I was dating and it's the same thing with comedy. Like if you hear a joke, you're not thinking about it. you forget all the other it's flow. It's yeah. flow. And I mean, I, Yeah, yeah. it's subconscious right. really. And that's because the entire day, my, my brain is just going constantly. Like what's going to kill me now? Like, what's my five-point contingency plan for the five-point contingency plan to get out of whatever shit situation could possibly happen, like, at any given moment? And that's how most of us live our lives, whether we know it or not. Maybe not on the scale that I live it, because my brain is screwed up from years of war, (laughs) but we all have that, whether it's our kids or our families or our jobs or our football team or whatever. And you get into a comedy club... And someone's making you laugh. You forget everything else for 15, 20, 45, 90 minutes. And that's when I, when I had that goal of getting back down range to perform for troops, that's what I wanted. I wanted them to forget for 45 minutes, or an hour and a half, that they're sitting on their Kevlars outside of their you know, I, I did a show standing on top of a Patriot missile battery. 25 clicks from the Turkish border or 25 clicks from the Syrian border like in Turkey to a Patriot missile battery. Like I was standing on a Patriot missile battery or Patriot missile launcher telling jokes and they forgot for an hour that less than 30 kilometers away people were trying to like fucking kill them. But let
0: me ask you about the laughter and the healing for you. How does it, what does it
1: do with you, for you? It does the same thing that it does for them. It makes me forget for a little bit. You know, I, uh, my wife left in the middle of the pandemic, a soldier committed suicide, and I didn't have comedy for two years. You know, I, I, I couldn't get to the comedy clubs. I couldn't tell jokes. I couldn't make people laugh. I couldn't make me laugh. So the, the comedy that you create, there's a rush. Yeah. I used to describe it like this. So I was a paratrooper. Um, I hate heights. I'm five foot seven, five eight with my jump boots on. Standing at the door of a C-17 or C-130, staring out into the horizon, your heart beats a million miles an hour. And you step out of that plane, you count to four and pray to God your main chute opens. And if it doesn't, you better pull that reserve chute, start slapping away and prepare to hit the ground real hard. That's exactly how I feel on stage anytime I have a new joke. Cause yeah, I jumped out of a plane dozens of times. I've been on stage hundreds of times, but it doesn't mean that shoot's gonna open every time. If I, can, I know I'm good at what I do, but if I walk on stage with a new joke that I'm not sure if it's gonna work, I'm standing in that door again, man, and the wind is hitting my face, and until the moment that shoot opens, or in terms of comedy club, when, when people start laughing at that joke, I gotta be prepared to, to pull my reserve. And that's what it is every time I get on stage with a new joke. I did, you know, I, I left the, the show last night, I did two new jokes and they hit. And that's the best feeling in the world. That is-
0: No reserve yeah, shoot.
1: that is the rush of jumping out of the plane, the four seconds of the, the wind screaming in your ears until your shoot opens and then it's just peace. And that's how I feel when I have a new joke. I am ready to jump out that door. And I pray to God that I, that muscle memory or my skills or, you know, my experience as a comedian make that joke work, make that parachute open. And if it doesn't, and sometimes it doesn't, often it doesn't, a lot it doesn't, I got to be ready with my reserve. I got, you know, what joke do I have in the holster that I know is going to work next that's going to dig me out of this hole? And, and sometimes that happens, um, it happens to all of us, but you know, it's all training. How do you, how do you, you know, you slip away, you know, someone's coming at you, you, you you grab your, grab your, uh, the shoot and slip away. And, and that's what I do with comedy. Like I've got 15 years of comedy, uh, you know, in my head jokes that I've written, other instances where I like I get off stage and like, Oh, I should have said this to get them back. Or, and my thing is just make it, you know, make it even more awkward. That joke didn't work. Well, this is going to be real weird for the rest of us for the rest of the night. And that usually like, okay, (laughs) that extra weirdness will will dig me out of that hole until I can, you know, fumble through another joke or, you know, figure out what I'm doing next. So yeah, that happens. Yeah, no, I always wonder that.
0: You know, well, and it's interesting because because you specifically from a, from someone that has trained the way that you have in that quick amount of time when you grew up really fast from nineteen to twenty um, in a minute, you know, you're forced to actually reset the button right. and to rethink and to to load the ammo and to look left, yeah. look right, adapt. You know, the G- General Hammond, who we work with at Homebase, is always like, how do you adapt? Um, yeah.
1: weapon jammed. What do you oh. do? Drop the mag, look, right. tap it on your helmet, get the sand out of it, pop it back in, recharge your weapon. That, and, it, and it's muscle memory. Just do it. And that's, I think, you know, younger comics don't get that. You know, uh, I remember being a young comic and just thinking, man, I am the shit. I am awesome. I didn't know nothing. I, had, I didn't know nothing. And the problem was, like, I didn't really tank for, like, six months. So for six months in the beginning of my comedy career, I was the best goddamn p- comic in the world. Until one night, I <laughs> ate a flaming bag of shit, and I'm like, I don't know what to do right now. And it was just, you know, the other comics, like the headliner and the feature— the most painful laugh you could ever hear is when the room is quiet and it's just two comics in the back of the room laughing at how bad you just ate shit.
0: And that was my first experience. And I was like,
1: well, that doesn't feel good uh, at all. And, you know, mm-hmm. that just comes with experience. I didn't, have, I didn't have the training or the extra ammo on me to dig myself out of, you know, that hole. And it's, you know, same right, with being right. a soldier. You know, you pull a trigger enough times... You're going to be good at it. You can jump out of a plane enough times. You're going to be good at it, but you know, not going to be an airborne Ranger your first week of basic training. So speak. So speaking of that, what is next? I mean, with all the hats
0: and, uh, you, you set aside a goal several years ago, I think it was 2008 with GI's as a comedy and you, you went and you, you were able to, to perform pretty quick. Like you said. Um, you're, you're a dude who, who sets out on a mission or multiple probably at the same time. What's next for you as far as, uh, where you want to take things?
1: I am at a big reset phase in my life right now, to be quite honest with you. Um, I mean, you know, the world being in the state that it is, uh, I just went through a divorce.
0: That's a reset.
1: And, uh, you know, my career and my industry is radically different. I, uh, I I went to uh, New Year's with some friends. I spent the holidays with some friends, um, and, uh, they do this thing every year where you know, they said, and it's a room full of industry guys, actors, comedians, musicians, whatever. And, uh, they go around the room and they say, you know, what are you, what are you putting out into the world this year? What is, what is your goal? And, uh, and I said, the only thing I want to do this year is feel the music again and, and feel the laughter. Cause you know, as much as I, I work and, and I do this thing that I do for others. I don't feel it. You know, I'm a musician that hears the music, but I don't feel it anymore. I tell the jokes and I hear the laughter, but I don't feel it anymore. Maybe it's the divorce. Maybe it's you know, the state of the world that we are in. Maybe it's the last five years. <laughs> At this point, I'm living for other soldiers again, because you know, I, uh, I don't want to take this to a dark place, but I got, I got, I got 5150 about a year ago. And you know, yeah, I'm a Van Halen fan, but it's not, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, the, uh, 5150 is the LA police code for somebody who is, could be in a position to harm themselves or others. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. I just, and, and, I didn't have comedy. I didn't have live music. I didn't have the things that I've been doing for 18 years to, right. to keep the demons at bay. You know, the world started coming back to life last June and, uh, slowly. Your world. I mean, the world, you know, like. Yeah, Comedy clubs open, venues started opening and, and, uh, you know, I could get out and do comedy again, but even then, like it was, I didn't feel it. I remember one night last July, I did a set <clears throat> at the Laugh Factory. It's my home club. And, um, there's a very famous comedian that was doing a set that night and the manager said, uh, Hey, this comic's going up. And, uh. It's a killer. It's a, it's a killer comic. It's super famous. He said, hey, nobody wants to go up after him. Do you mind going up after him? <laughs> I said, yeah, fine. I don't care. Full House, Friday night. No, Saturday night. Hollywood. Sunset Boulevard. And I go up after this comic, who is, again, super famous. And he was great. He did his thing. He was who he is, and he killed it. I got up on stage, and I made him look like an open micer. Not because I was trying to. I just went up with a flamethrower, like, like uh, Al Pacino in uh, Scent of a Woman, when he's in the courtroom, and he says, if I was a younger man, I'd take a flamethrower to this place, and I took a flamethrower to that club and i
0: that was your your best your set like the seven people that were oh it was that were belly laughing yeah, it was,
1: but it was, but 700 yeah, it was that but th- 200 people and i got off stage and i didn't feel a thing I just it was just a thing that i did it was it was my killer 20 minutes in front of a packed audience on sunset boulevard who just saw a super famous comedian and i didn't feel a thing. I was up all night watching the video, like I shot it on my phone, and I just watched the video over and over and over again, like zooming in on audience members, literally falling out of their chairs, laughing at jokes that were coming out of my mouth, and I didn't feel a thing. I felt nothing. I told one new joke last night, and I just listened to it over and over and over again on my drive home because, it made me laugh, and it made the audience laugh. It's a it's a dumb joke. It's a nothing joke. Parachute. Yeah. Tell it the joke. Oh God, how's the joke go? Oh, so I'm dating again, and I heard someone say, uh, "Sex is like pizza. Even if it's bad, it's good." That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard because that person has never had Detroit style pizza or been to prison. <laughs> it's a dumb joke. It's a nothing joke. <laughs> uh... But it made me laugh. Made the audience laugh. And I just listened to it over and over and over again on the drive home. And for a second, I feel, I feel that relief because I don't, because the night that I went up and I killed at the laugh factory, I didn't feel anything. I didn't feel relief and feel scared and feel happy. I felt nothing. It was numb. And that's what I say. That's what I mean when I say I want to feel comedy again.
0: I want to thank my guest, Army veteran Tom Tran. Thank you, sir, for your service, for your family's service, and for all those times you've given us those belly laughs. So Homebase does the Run to Homebase at Fenway Park every year. We are on for July 30th, 2022. Go to runtohomebase.org. This is, a, this is a great time. It's a 5 or 9K. You run around the city of Boston. Please sign up and run with us. It's a great way to get together and raise the funds for our veterans and military families. Please subscribe, follow us on Apple, iHeart, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was edited and co-produced by Lucy Little. Please join us on Mondays for more stories, more discussions, and conversations. I'm Ron Hirschberg. Be well, and thanks so much for listening.